joy to be up here this morning. Joy to be worshiping our Lord together and spending some time hearing from Him in His Word. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Luke Wayne. I'm an elder here at the Mission Church. And uh, on a personal level, excited to announce that just this week, we've been able to bring home our new baby, Elizabeth Abigail Wayne. So that's number four for the Wayne clan. We're, uh, we're very proud, very happy of the blessing that God has given us. You know, I, I love raising kids. I absolutely love being a father for so many reasons. And you know, part of it though is the chance to go back and read all those old stories that you're supposed to have grown out of. And now I get I have the excuse with my kid on my lap to read the stories again. I love stories. And it's so fun to get to experience them anew through new eyes, new ears who have not heard these stories before. See the surprise at things that have become ordinary to us. See the, uh, the, the, the shock, the worry about how things are going to happen when by our age you know the way that these stories always end up working out, even if you haven't heard it before. But it's, it, it's, it's thrilling. I love it. And as I think about all these stories that we, we tell our kids, and even the ones we continue to enjoy as adults, from ancient Greek playwrights to classical literature to modern novels, movies, and TV shows. We partake of stories, and we find in them recurring themes. There are themes of what make a good story, themes that make things so compelling that across cultures and across time, we come back to them again and again. And one of those that we can't seem to get away from is the idea of a character who does not know or is denying who he really is. And at the crux of the story, at the real trial point, you have the moment when that character finally either comes to discover or owns up to what they've been running from and denying from and trying not to be and finally accepts and steps into who they really are. And there's, it's a turning point. And everything begins to come together towards the grand climax at that point of discovery. And this is true whether, whether we're talking about Sophocles' Oedipus discovering who his real parents are, or the ranger uh, who suddenly comes to grips and steps into his role. Strider is now Aragon, who will ascend to the throne of Gondor. Or Buzz Lightyear, who figures out that he's not a space ranger <laughs> and is in fact a toy. And after the trauma of that discovery comes to realize that, that trying to be the space ranger he thought he was, he was lost, and it caused nothing but problems. And yet when he realized who he really was, there was purpose in that. There was purpose. This is all over our storytelling. 
sometimes in more subtle ways, in stories that don't seem to be identity stories. I think of most of the men here will probably remember this scene, the movie Gladiator. And yeah, this isn't a story about a man who forgets who he is or is running off and living in denial. It's a, it's a story of a Roman general who's betrayed by a usurper king. But after all is lost and he's thought to be dead, he finds himself as a slave and nobody else knows who he is and he's living behind a mask as an entertainer. Until finally, at the crucial moment, standing before the usurping emperor who has slaughtered his family and, and, and tried to have him executed and thinks he's dead, the turning point of the movie is where he takes off the mask and shows his face and announces before all the masses of Rome gathered around watching, I am Maximus Decimus Meridius, general of the armies of the north servant of the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my revenge in this life or the next. And every guy in the audience is, yeah! But what just happened? All he did was list a bunch of biographical details. You know... I'd love to walk in trying to get a bank loan and announce my resume that way. <laughs> uh, and I will get this interest rate in this bank or the next. Uh, <laughs> but in the story, it matters. Because at this point, he stops wallowing in his slavery and just trying to survive, and he steps up and owns who he is, even if it's going to kill him. And in the end, one man, being who he was really made to be, whatever it cost him, turns the empire upside down. You see, we live in a culture that has forgotten who and what we are. We live in a day that is defined by a crisis in identity. And like the characters in many of these movies, we either don't even know who we were made to be or we are living in rebellion against it. We're running away, trying to invent an identity of our own making, of our own liking. But like in all the great stories, the identity, who you really are, is not something you discover within or something you invent. It's often something you didn't want you never would have chosen. It is an objective reality of who you were made to be. But when we own up to it, it changes everything. In the weeks ahead, this is going to be a running theme. We're going to be looking back at Genesis 1 through 3 and looking at the create creation and the fall, and exploring who it is, what it is that God has made us to be. And Rich is going to be walking through some of the specific implications, who we are as men, who we are as women, who we are in relationship to each other, in the relationship God designed men and women to have in marriage and family and our relationships in the church. We're going to be looking at these things. 
But today we're going to be looking at the most, one of the most fundamental aspects of this. Not just who I am in my role as a man or as a woman, as a father, as a husband, as a churchman, but who I am as a human. What God made us distinctly in creation to be. So specifically, there are three points I want to hit on today that I think are very central to our identity, that we cannot escape, that we must hold on to, and that we must live in light of. And as we do, we will see the story change. These three three things are rather simple, but they're crucial. The first is the cause of the creation of man. The second is the purpose of the creation of man. And lastly is the essence or the nature of the creation of man. Or, if we want to put this more simply, who made us, why did he make us, and just what are we? Again, the answers on one level are extremely simple, but they are profound. And once we realize who we really are, and when our life matches up with that identity, it does change everything. So, we're going to take a look at our two key texts that we're going to be looking at today. And again, in the weeks ahead, Rich will be dealing with a lot of the other verses around this and flushing out the context more. So, we're going to be looking just at a few key portions of Genesis 1 and 2 today. So, I'm going to read those, we'll pray, and we'll dive right in. So, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. And when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Genesis 2, 5 through 8. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, glorious God in heaven, I pray that you would open our hearts to your word today. God, that you would help us to see by what you have spoken, by what you have revealed, by what you have done, who you are as our maker, and who we are as your creation. God, may we see and know and believe in seeing who you've made us to be. May we walk in your ways. God, we love you. We praise your glorious holy name. In the name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior, we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's go ahead and dive into this passage. Now we look at how it opens. And the verse opens then. 
That's really important. Then God said. Now that's important because it reminds us that we're jumping in at verse 27. This isn't the very beginning. This verse assumes that you've been reading everything up to that point. Now we don't have time, unfortunately, to dive in to all of the verses leading up to this and all the glorious detail of creation prior to this. Perhaps one day we'll, we'll do that series. But it's worth looking here, just a, remembering just a moment, sort of an overview of what came prior to this moment of God creating man. So the chapter famously begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God brings the universe and all of its elements into being out of nothing. There was no universe, and God makes a universe. And from that, he then, over a six-day period, begins to form and create that into the ordered, glorious cosmos that we marvel at and love and live in today. God forms light and dark, sky and sea, trees and stars and moon and sun, fish and birds and animals of every kind. One by one, day by day, God makes each of his creatures. And then we come to our verse at the climax of the sixth day, towards the end of God's creation labor, where God says, let us make man. God, who all this time has said, let there be, and there was at his command, comes to forming us. And so, as we examine this passage, I want to start with that first sentence. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And the thing is, we need to really dig in to the grammar here. Now, I know everyone always says, don't start a sermon with your most exciting point because then everyone kind of loses you after that because you did all the good stuff up front. But no, we're going to do the grammar now. Um, so let's, let's dive in to the finer points of the grammar and word forms in this. Seriously, though, this is going to show us a great deal of detail we might passively over, uh, overlook about the answer to our first question. What is the cause of the creation of man? Who or what made us? Where do we come from? What's the cause of us being here? And at first, we look at the verse, and the answer is on the surface is obvious. God said, let us make, okay, God made us. But the pronouns have led to intense debates and scholarly discussions and, and many, many books over the centuries after this has been written, because God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Who is he talking to? Is God our sole creator? Or were there a team of creators and God was maybe the leader? 
Who else is involved? Why, why the plural pronouns here? What is going on with this? And one very ancient Jewish interpretation that is still popular among certain scholars today is that God was speaking to the angels or a particular council of high, exalted, ruling angels, what some of the rabbis called the angels of the presence, the ones very close to the throne of God. And so the picture here is that of a royal court on this interpretation, that what monarch wouldn't be surrounded by advisors and servants and ministers who do his bidding? Now, to be clear on this perspective, that these rabbis and these scholars and people who, who put this view forward are not arguing that God needed help in creation, or that some of creation was not God's work, but was someone else's work, but rather that this was an image of God's great royalty and sovereignty, that He is sitting as a king enthroned with such lofty ministers as these archangels who are all gathered in His presence to do His bidding, to worship and obey whatever He commands. That in the ancient mind, it said, this would have pictured a royal court and shown the great might and sovereignty of God. And so this council is meant to be a picture not of God being lesser and needing help in creation, but of just how great and royal and sovereign God really is. And certainly, as we move forward in Scripture, something like this picture of God's throne room does frequently occur when we see visions or descriptions or poetry about the throne room of God. Always included is the idea of these great angels that worship Him and cry out how holy He is, that He is surrounded by the heavenly host, and that that's a picture of just how mighty and wondrous this God is. But there are problems with taking that image and reading it back into the moment of creation itself in general and the creation of man specifically. So one of the first problems is that throughout Scripture, the writers go out of their way to emphasize that God is the sole agent of creation. God even uses words, I alone stretched out the heavens. Who was with me? I did it with my own hands. None of that is the language of a king commanding his assembly to, to get things done. As exalted a picture as that might be, it's not the picture that the Old Testament gives us of creation. We read places like Nehemiah 9.6, you are the Lord. You alone have made the heaven, even the heaven of heavens, with all their host and the earth that and all that's in it and the seas and all that's in them. The heavenly hosts are simply like the, like the animals in the sea and the people and the animals on the land are simply things that this God made, not the counsel with him when he's making them. That is the picture that we're given through the plain reading of Scripture throughout. And so, in general, the idea that God is speaking to this heavenly council is not befitting of anything else that Scripture has to say about the time of creation. And specifically, 
When God says, let us make man in our image, whoever the us is, we're made in, in their image. If the us includes the angels, then we're made not only in the image of God, but in the image of God and angels. And that is not what the Scripture teaches. In fact, in this very passage, after it says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, it goes on right afterwards for the narrator to say, and so God made man in his own image. Very emphatically saying it was the singular image of God and God alone making him. And so this idea of God speaking to a plural council of spiritual beings just doesn't fit with the context here or with the greater testimony of Scripture. So when God says, let us make man in our image, he is in some sense referring to himself. And this, began, this then leads to the second interpretation that we will often hear. That God is speaking in the plural as a projection of his greatness. That God calls himself us because that is what kings do. It's what linguists call the royal we. And this is weird to us because in American English today, we do not talk this way. But there are cultures in which a king making a proclamation will refer to himself or other high officials, judges and, and other people of great authority, will refer to themselves in the plural as a representation of their great authority and who they are. That is a real linguistic thing. It's rather opposite in English, or in modern American English, I should say, that we do sometimes use we to refer to an individual, but when we do, it's usually condescension. It's when we're talking to a child. Now, we're going to put our toys away this time, right? The we's really you. I'm not putting them away. We're going to remember to put our shoes on, or we're going to get in trouble this time, right? I mean, this is, it's a condescending talk. It's the opposite of exalting someone to speak in that way. But in other languages and cultures, especially historically, that has not always been the case. And even hundreds of years ago, our English-speaking forebears some, uh, in, in some generations had kings who would, who would write documents and do things this way. So is that what God's doing? Well, there is some precedent in Hebrew for the idea of plural a plural form being a form of, of exalting or reverence rather than um, more than one in number. In fact, Genesis is using an example of this unambiguously. The word used for God throughout this creation chapter is the word Elohim. Now, im, when you hear that on a Hebrew word, is a plural form. Elohim is a plural form of the Hebrew word for God. And some, uh, some people through the ages have actually tried to exploit this to make Genesis 1 originally a more pagan creation story about God's creating. Well, see, it's Elohim, it's plural gods, and then he says us and our, it, it's, it was originally this story about the gods creating. Joseph Smith 
the founder of uh, Mormonism. He went down this road and argued that this is what Elohim was talking about here. This was the gods created. If you look at the, um, the, the Mormon book of Abraham, you'll find Genesis 1 rewritten as the gods said and the gods did. Similarly, the 20th century false prophet Herbert W. Armstrong said that because the word Elohim, God is not an individual, God is a family. Family of deities. Or right now, there is a cult based out of Korea that is growing and proselytizing even here in the U.S. called the World Mission Society Church of God. You may come across their members at some point who will argue that there is both a God the Father and a God the Mother, and that this word Elohim is referring to both of them together, the gods, father and mother. And they, in fact, believe that a woman who is one of the head leaders of their church is the incarnation of this mother God. And so people have done all kinds of things with this, but it shows not only uh, theological um, ignorance and blasphemy, but it actually shows ignorance of the Hebrew language because these plural forms are often used, often used to reflect not multitude of number, but exalting the person. Later in Genesis, Abraham's servant refer to him as Adonim. That's the plural form of master. Now, are those servants saying that Abraham is really a bunch of men? That Abraham is this title of a group of masters? No, of course not. They call him Adonim as a way of respecting him. They use the plural form of master out of their reverence for him. After this, Joseph, when he's in the house of Potiphar, refers to Potiphar as his Adonim his plural master. He's showing that respect to him. I mean, in, uh, in Isaiah 1.3, even the owner of a donkey is referred to that donkey's Adonim. <laughs> even that, that higher form is used even, even there. So again, this is all over the place. King David is called this. Multiple, obviously single individuals are spoken of this way. Similarly, in the Song of Solomon, the woman yearning for her husband calls him in Song of Solomon 5.16, altogether lovely. It will be in our translations. But the word there is actually mahmadim. It's the plural form of mahmed, of lovely or desirable. But she's not saying, my husband is desirables. He's lots of different desirables. No, he's saying that he is totally and completely desirable. It's, it's, it's magnifying how desirable, how much she yearns for him. So this is basic Hebrew grammar here. We don't speak this way in English, but in Hebrew, this is extremely common. And we know for a fact that in Genesis 1, God is being spoken of as Elohim and yet as a single God because all the verbs are singular to put this in what it might sound like in English. If I said Elohim is, you know I'm talking about a singular. If I said Elohim are, then I'm talking about plural. Well, in Hebrew, all the verbs work that way. And so when it says that Elohim created, it's singular. Elohim saw that it was good. Elohim said, let there be. Every verb in there is in the singular form. And so we can say without, without any um, controversy or skepticism at all with 100% certainty. Elohim is being used in the, as a 
plural form for a singular God to talk about how great this is. This isn't just, just some God. This is, this is God. And so he's spoken of in that reverential plural. Okay, so we can say that's a definite aspect of the Hebrew language. Is that what's going on when God says, let us make in our image? Is it simply that? Again, there's a problem with this. Because while using titles and nouns to describe someone in this exalted and reverential way in plural is very normal in Hebrew, using pronouns about oneself in plural, the sort of royal we, is unknown in all of Hebrew literature of the ancient world, entirely unknown unless this is an example of it. Which means no other king, no other figure, not even any other pagan god ever spoke in this sort of let us, talking about just themselves. This kind of uh, royal we, if that's what it was, would be assigned uniquely to Jehovah God alone, and the Hebrews didn't let anyone else speak that way. That would be odd. We don't know of any other language in which that's been the case with this kind of royal we. So if it is the case, then perhaps even then, it's because it tells us something more about this God. And so, this seems to be more than mere lofty grammar going on here. There seems to be something real and meaningful about God being said. This construction is abnormal, and that's probably why ancient Jewish literature is filled with different options of maybe it's this and maybe it's that, because it wasn't grammatically obvious. There was no clear cultural construction being used. God was saying something unique, and it was puzzling. But it seems to contain some truth about this one God who has brought all things into existence, this great sovereign, this creator. And the best explanation seems to be the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. That there is but one God, one being, who is Lord sovereign of all universe, one creator, one uncreated, one self-existent. Before creation, there was just him, and he brought everything else into being. But this God exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The eternal Father, Son, and Spirit we see in the rest of Scripture can speak to one another, send one another, love one another, and yet not in a way that divides them in essence. They are but one being, but one God. This is marvelous. Marvelous to our minds. But should that surprise us? The one unique God who can speak and all things come to be? Would we think that everything about him would be, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, of course, I saw that coming. No, it, we should wonder at him. He should boggle our minds. And so he does. And this fits 
well into this text and into the rest of what Scripture says about creation. You see, God creates the world and makes man. His spirit moves over the waters, Genesis 1-2. And it's the spirit who the Psalms say, Psalm 104-30, for example, that continues to go forth and give life to all of creation. God says, let there be, and there is. Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 33-6, by the word of the Lord were the heavens created. So God, by His Spirit and by His word, creates. But God's word is not mere sounds. Because on the one hand, God spoke and man is created. And yet, we see in the next chapter, God forming man from the dust. God acting and working. Elsewhere again, it describes God making with his own hands. It describes this this labor going on. The word is described as one sent out to accomplish a mission and returning to God afterwards. There's all sorts of language throughout the scripture. When the word of the Lord appears to prophets and then talks to them and and answers back and has conversations, it's not just sounds. The word of the Lord is personal. And of course, as we just read a few sermons ago in our John series, the New Testament says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. By Him, all things were created. Without Him, not one thing was made that has been made. And that Word became flesh and dwelled among us. The Son of God is the living Word, who is both with God and is God. So we have God and His Spirit and His Word explicitly involved in creation. One God, three in person. And it is perhaps worth noting, (coughs) forgive me, it's perhaps worth noting that in every documented instance we have in the early centuries of the church where a Christian writer commented on these plural nouns in Genesis and this creation account, every single one of them identified the us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or in a few cases, as the Father, His wisdom, and His Word, who were then identified as the Spirit and the Son. Um, and so in, in each of these cases, as far as the documents that have survived for us to look at today, some of them going back to at, as, at least as early as the early 2nd century, possibly the late 1st century. I mean, we have very early testimony of Christians reading this and immediately seeing. Well, yeah, that's the Trinity. That's God speaking within His own nature. That's who God is. That's what God does. So as a side note, these citations that we have are a pretty huge challenge to those who would try to say that the idea of the Trinity was invented hundreds of years later by church councils when they're already reading Genesis and saying, yep, Trinity. Um, So we can certainly see that this was what the early Christians believed about God, but it's what they believed about this passage, at least many of them whose writings we have. And so, what does this tell us? Yes, 
Who made us? God did. The one eternal creator God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The wondrous triune God of the Old and New Testament. That God made us. We are His. He brought us into existence for His will, for His purposes. Now, one more point before we leave the excitement of our grammar study and move on. Is that we see here in Genesis that it says, for all of the other things that God created, it's in the passive voice. Let there be. Let this come forth. Let this be there. Let then it gets to man instead of let there be man in our image. It says, let us make. For the first time, the language switches to the active voice. I believe in the inspiration of every word of Scripture, and I don't think this change is by accident. That throughout all of creation, God says, let there be, and then here He says, let us make. So what's the point? Well, the effect is the same. In every case, God brings that thing into existence by the, by his, by, by the word of his mouth. And we're no exception to that. And yet, the wording here breaks you out of the pattern. Let there be, let there be, let there be, let us make. Hold on, stop and pay attention here. Something special is happening here. This is emphasizing God's active, personal, direct involvement in the formation of man for a peculiar and meaningful purpose. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't have a meaningful purpose for all of his other things, but he wants us to stop and catch what he's saying about us here. And I think there are implications in many of the worldviews we have today. I don't think this let us make language, nor any of the language we're going to look at in future passages, is consistent with the idea that, well, okay, God kind of brought life into existence in some pool eons ago, and by His plan, all of that evolved into this and that over time, and we're one of the things that finally sprang from that. No, we are a special intentional creation of God. God made us. Not just the context for us to arise, intending for us to pop up here. God made us. Directly, personally, purposefully. What our culture around us tells us about who we are is a lie. We are not mere animals. We are something specific that God made for a separate and precise purpose. Well, that brings us then to our second point. So we've looked at the cause of man. Now let's look, let's look at the purpose. Why did God make us? So let's go back to our passage. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
So the focus of this section of Scripture is on the creation of man and how mankind is uniquely made in his image, after his likeness. So what's that mean? What does it mean that we are made in the image of God? Well, we live in Utah. We often hear from the predominant cultural religion by whose temples we're surrounded that this means that we are what God is. That in His image means that we are physically like Him. That He has the same parts we have. That He is indeed the same species we are, just in a much more advanced stage of development. That what we are, God once was. That what God is, we may become. But this is, this is nonsense. This is myth. This is indeed blasphemy. It brings down, it diminishes the, the greatness of what we just looked at. The glory and uniqueness and splendor of who this God is who made us. And it seeks to, to raise us up to something that we are not. Well, it's nice for me to say that. But can I get that from the text? Well, yes. Again, pay attention to the words. Throughout creation, God makes the birds and the fish and the animals and all the living things after their kind. But God does not make us after his kind. Had God wanted to say that we were a reproduction of what he is, a continuation of the same kind of thing, he had the words for that. He'd already used them. He did not use them here. Very clearly, he says we are in his image after his likeness, not his kind. We are not what he is. While there is a sense, a real sense, in which we represent God, we picture God, and we're going to talk about that, we are not the same thing. And indeed, the same author, the author of the Torah, who wrote Genesis, will go on to write in Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man. It doesn't get more plain than that. And the law is also filled, constantly reminding us that it is an offense to God to represent Him in an image of any created thing, not just of animals, but even in human form. To represent God by the shapes of the things that He has created is an offense, a sin, a blasphemy to God. And so the writer of these books of Moses, he does not want us to fall into this trap. That is not what the image of God means. So, of course, if that's not what it means, if it doesn't mean that we are shaped like God, or that we are what He is, what does it mean? Well, that's a big subject on which many books have been, have been written, and theologians will disagree on the details. And I do not want to wade into the debatable parts today. But what I want to give you today is a core of what we can definitely say is certainly meant and a foundation on which you can build if you want to study this issue further. 
So there is perhaps much more to it than this, but there is nothing less to it than this. And so, I'm going to start by thinking for just a moment about what these words would have meant in the ancient Near Eastern and Mediterranean world in which they would have been spoken. How were this, these, this idea of the image of God or the image of the gods by some of the pagan cultures, how was this used? Well, we have a number of cultures, but Egypt, for example, that in some of their dynasties, you, Egypt is such an ancient culture that changed so much over time, you can never say one thing was always true of Egyptian culture. But in some of their dy- ancient dynasties, they referred to their kings as being made in the image of the gods. Now, what did that mean? The kings were obviously the same physical shape as all the other people, but the people were not in the image of the gods. The king was. And as far as physical similarities, if you study Egyptian burial practices, you'll know that the Egyptians were well aware that their kings were exactly what they were. They had seen and handled parts of their king's body that you and I have never looked at. They were intimately aware, down to the organs, down to every part, that their kings were human just like they were in every way. And yet their kings were in the image of God. They were not. Why? Because it didn't have to do with shape or appearance. The kings represented the divine authority on earth. They were in the image of God because they were kings. The gods had made them kings. They, were, they were, had the authority over the world, over the people. You had to submit to them because their authority was divine authority. They represented the gods. And we're going to see that in some ways the biblical use of this word is very different. But there's a commonality. The way this is being used wouldn't have been trying to write a new dictionary. The word image here clearly means that man was made with representative authority. Now, we can know this from the text itself. The text says, and God, uh, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them what? Have dominion. Have dominion over all these things. And then it bookends it with, and then God made them in his image. We never left the subject of the image. And so the giving of dominion is not this extra thing. Let's make him in our image. Oh, and let's also give him some dominion. This is all one statement. Man's responsibility, his duty, his privilege, his honor is to go forth and to bring God's order in accordance with his will to govern and rule and manage this world as God would have it done on his behalf. We have been given representative authority and all the privileges and responsibilities that come with that. We have been placed here as the image of God. Let's try to think this through in a modern concept, a a modern analogy. What is would you say, the image of America? What's the image of our culture? It's not a map that looks exactly like the country. 
The image of America might be the stars and stripes. The flag we fly that looks nothing like our country. Our nation isn't a big rectangle and it's not red or white and there's no stars on it. The the physical attributes do not literally, directly reflect the nature because that's not what image means. It is a symbol that represents the authority and the presence of the country that made it and granted it that status. And yet, that makes it extremely important. When we planted an American flag on the moon, that meant something. When a protester sets that flag on fire, that means something. And for many countries, to do so to the image of that nation is a punishable offense. We are God's flag, planted in His creation. We are His ambassadors carrying out His will. Now think about it, how this plays out in the rest of Scripture. James 3.9 says that it is nonsense to praise God with your mouth and then with the same mouth slander men made in His image. If image was anything about physical resemblance, that wouldn't make any sense. If there's two guys who look just alike, and I say, this guy is a great guy. He's awesome, he's kind, he's generous, he's, he's wonderful. And this guy, he's a complete jerk. He's selfish, and he's rude, and he's hurtful. Is there any contradiction in that? But they're in the image of each other. No. No, that's not what that's... that's They're two different guys, and just because they look alike, there's no contradiction in me saying those two different things. So how is it that there's a contradiction in praising God and slandering men made in His image? Well, it would be like if I announce, I love my country, I'm a patriot, as I throw the flag on the ground and trample it and desecrate it. There is a contradiction in that. To do the one thing. The way that I treat the image of my country undermines my praise of it. And in the same way, if God has said, mankind, men and women, male and female, you are my image. And I say, oh, I love you, God, but I go out and I slander and mistreat his image. That is disrespect ultimately directed at him. And he doesn't tolerate it. It is sin held against us. A great sin when we think about it. When we realize who we are, we realize that some sins we might shrug off as minor. A loose word spoken here, a grumble there, a gossip there, are in fact tremendous affronts to God himself. And what we say of the flag today was much more intense in the ancient world. Rome, the image of Rome, was an eagle. There was a great controversy that Josephus reports where Herod tried to put the image of an eagle up in the the temple or on the gate to the entrance to the temple and the, the Jews saw it as an idol and came and ripped it down and huge political controversy there. Why was Herod doing it out of his loyalty to Rome? to put their image up. The most famous example is the Aquila, the emblem that the Roman armies would take into battle 
which was a metal eagle up on top of a pole. And if that was captured by an enemy, they would send their armies against that enemy at the loss of hundreds, maybe thousands of lives to get back the piece of wooden metal. Why? Why was it so important? Because it's the image of Rome. And if the image of Rome is taken, it's as if Rome was captured. It's as if Rome itself is defeated and enslaved for the image to be held by an enemy. It cannot be tolerated. We must get the image back. Again, when we understand this, when we look at places like Genesis 9, where God says that the reason it is wrong to murder, we can shed the blood of animals, but you better not shed the blood of a human. Why? Because it says in that chapter, the reason is that man was made in the image of God. Therefore, to slay a man is an assault indirectly at God himself. It's not just murder, it's blasphemy. It's desecration of his image. It is to profane something that God has made sacred. This is what God made us to be. And this has a tremendous effect on how we ought to see ourselves and our neighbors. And we ought to live in light of this. If I am God's image, I'm here for a purpose. I have a duty. It goes beyond me. I'm here to represent someone greater than me on his authority. My life is a mission. To bring about, to labor for, to serve and advance the kingdom of God. I'm serving the one whose image I am. That gives me great honor. It gives me great responsibility. But so this is also very different, I mentioned than the way that the ancients used this. So we've seen the similarities. But again, to the ancients, who was made in the image of God? Kings? Maybe priests? Perhaps judges? Those who could make these authoritative pronouncements? But when God created, who did he say was in his image? God made man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Who's in the image of God? All of us. Every single man and woman is in the image of God. That's radical compared to what any other ancient culture thought. That is a tremendous truth that the people had rebelled against and walked away from. It was wicked for a king to say, I'm in the image of God and you're not. I can do what I want to you. How dare you defy me? Sure, a king is given their authority by God, can administer it, but they have no right to treat their subjects as anything less than fellow image bearers of God. So we see all mankind is made made in His image. We together have a shared duty, a shared mission to advance 
the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean that we all have the same role in that. And in fact, as we look at what all of Scripture says, and we're going to be looking over the weeks to come as we look at distinctions and the duties of man and woman, husband and wife, all of these things, we're going to see that Scripture is very careful to lay out contexts of how each of us fulfill that purpose. So this doesn't swallow us in a sort of sameness where we all have the exact thing to do, but together, united, we have a purpose. And in Scripture, we each find our place in that role. And the facet of male and female is built into this very passage at the creation. You see, in the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't first point out that that means at creation, man was formally, by God Himself, divided into two specific sexes. Male and female, man and woman. That is given to us by God. Again, this is recovering who we are. As a culture, we rebel against this and to our detriment, to our folly. Because in doing so, we not only get wrong who God has made us to be, and so deviate from that perfect identity He's given us, which, as we've seen even in all our fictional stories, always leads to problems. But beyond that, in the image of God He created them, male and female He created them, to defy that is again an affront to the very image of God, how God chose to represent Himself in creation. We deface His image. And it's not a thing to be taken lightly. But there's even more to that male and female language here. Jesus in Matthew 19 and the parallel passages in the other Gospels quotes this passage. Male and female, He created them as the foundation for marriage. When did God make marriage? In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. That's where He made marriage. So marriage itself is an aspect of how God imaged Himself through man, how He represented Himself authoritatively on this earth in man. And how we see that fleshed out in the rest of Scripture, through the prophets, onto the letters of Paul, and even in the great vision of Revelation, of the marriage supper between Christ and His people, is this picture that marriage images and reflects the likeness of God by husbands acting out, living as a picture of God's redemptive love for His people, His covenant committed love to hold fast to His people, to love them, to protect them, and His people's Honor and submission to Him is then reflected in the wife. The prophets pictured this in God and Israel. 
Paul points this out again and again in Christ and the church. And again, our final glorious vision is never for this to go away, but that always forever the relationship of God and his people will be magnified in the picture of a marriage between Christ and the church. And so we see how do men and women, husband and wife, image God? By men lovingly, self-sacrificially leading and being what God made men to be. By women, gently, devotedly, serving, submitting and following their husbands. In this marriage relationship, we have a picture of God and His people And that is the image God always intended. Always. What he meant for marriage to be. Marriage isn't an image he appropriated later and thought would be a good analogy. He designed it, according to Jesus himself, in the very creation of man, to be that picture. Again, this tells us much of who we're to be and how we're to live. Now, so far in our last few minutes, so far we've, we've looked at our first two points, the cause of the creation of man and the purpose, but we still haven't quite answered the question. I know why I'm here. I know who made me, but what am I? Despite the real dignity and the special place we have as a creature made in the image of God, the answer to this last question is humbling. We are, in fact, dust and borrowed breath. Genesis 2, 5 through 8. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for God had not caused it to rain in the land, there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going out over the land and watering the face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there put man whom he had formed. Now, does this literally mean that God made us out of dirt? Or is this a a sort of cultural idiom, an an analogy that's supposed to tell us something about our our mortality or our fleetingness. Well, the thing is, it's described rather vividly in the the narrative as actions, not as sort of an idiom or a reference, a cliche. It's, It's described as if this is really how God made us. What's more, it goes on after the the fall in Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Well, the return is certainly literal. Our bodies decay back into dirt. That's what soil is, is decayed bodies. Sorry, that's that's (laughs) truth. (laughs) Um, And so we... It seems that the author intends us to see that just as we return to dirt, God really did bring us up from the dirt. That we 
are clay given life by a breath not our own. This language is echoed frequently in the Psalms. That we are made from dust, that we are dust, and that we return to dust. Look, for example, at Psalm 93, Psalm 103, 14, or Psalm 39, as if you want to look some up on your own to see that. We live on borrowed breath from our Maker. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 3.20, all are from dust and to dust all return. And then says in the climax of the book at 12.7, the dust returns to the earth where it was and the breath returns to God who gave it. And that's how he describes death. The book of Job also appeals often to this fact. In Job 34, 14 through 15, if he, that is God, should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. So at any moment, you are living by the grace of God. You have his breath, and if he just decides, I want it back today, you're lit. We live every second of every day on the gracious gift of a breath and spirit, not our own, that keeps us alive. Never lose sight of that. Interestingly, Job 32.8 says, but it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. I can't even take any pride in my own intelligence that I have, as uh, Job 35, 10 through 11 says, that I have more understanding than the beasts and learn more than the birds. Yet even that, as we just read in Job 32, 8, it's the breath of the Almighty that makes him understand. Where does my understanding come? Because I have the breath of God in me. Were it not for that, I would be nothing more than an animal or a clod. They think about Nebuchadnezzar. The moment God wanted to take his mind away and re reduced him to beastliness, to humble him, he did. Because his ability to have a mind to think was always borrowed in the first place. Everything we have, we owe to God. Our thoughts, our ideas, our intelligence, our learning, our language. Beautiful, wonderful realities. Rejoice in them every day. Never take them for granted. Be grateful. You owe God every moment for it. This continues in the New Testament. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15.47 says that the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. And the second man is from heaven. Did Jesus literally come down from heaven? Yes. Is Adam literally a man from dust? Yes. We are men of dust and breath. And yet, the Word, the Son of God, came down to redeem us, to deliver us, to make us His Oh, to unite us to himself as his people, to enter in that covenant fellowship, to forgive us from our sins. 
We are but dust and borrowed breath. And yet, the same God who gives us this fleeting life right now has promised that if we will turn from our sins and put our complete and full trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ who came and died on our behalf, who took the punishment for all the sins that we've committed against Him, against His image, that He would take our punishment on Himself, dying our death and giving us His life, that we may die and go to the dust but he will bring that dust to life again. He can do it. He's done it before. Today, if you have not put your trust completely and fully in the finished work of Jesus Christ, I urge you, with the breath that he has given you, turn and cry out to him. Repent and put your trust in God through Jesus Christ, his eternal son and word. Find your hope in Him. If you're here today and you are a believer, then recognize this truth, that like the psalmist says in Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. What are we but dust and breath? And yet, the psalmist continues, yet you have made him ruler over the works of your hands, set all things under his feet. We are his image. By His grace, He has given us that. What should our response be as the psalmist? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Humble Yourself and glorify the great and triune God who made You. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You so much. Thank You, wondrous Lord, for what You have done. We are but dust, but You choose to be honored and the worship that we give back to you with the breath you have given us. God, may we live in the humility of that recognition and yet in the dignity and purpose of knowing that you have chosen to make us in your image. God, we thank you. We glorify you. In the holy name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.